We're going to look at Psalm 23, and I'm going to, um, and I'm going to take a phrase from that. I'm going to really mess with it as much as I can to help us deepen our understanding of what this, what this psalm is about. And then I'm going to compare it to a New Testament concept, and then I'm going to help you be comforted by those concepts as we put them all together, and then I'm going to help you get really crushed and challenged by those concepts. So that's my outline. So let's start by reading Psalm 23. I'm getting some, some like mid-high feedback, it sounds like. But anyway, I'll... Um, I, no, I think those are muted. But anyway, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Psalm 23. I have it in the New International Version, so it might feel a little bit different for those of you who have, who have it in your mind with the King James, but we'll read it here. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and love. We thank you for what you give us in the word. How you just don't leave us to scrounge and scurry and figure things out on our own. But you give us a text. You inspire words that help us know who you are a little bit better. To help us know what you want a little bit more. You go beyond that. You design us with the conscience. And as believers, you give us your spirit. How resourced and enabled we are to represent you. Just be with me. Put truth on my tongue. Guard me from triviality. Be with those listening and and their ears that they might hear you and know what to do with what they hear, that you might be honored. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, this group may be more familiar than, than first service with my, with my first illustration here, but uh, it's about video games. I think I went back and I talked about pinball or something. Isn't that what they did before? And then later in like the 60s and or I guess the 70s, the, 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 the video game the arcades started coming around, especially in the late 70s and early 80s. I was in particular, I used to like to, um, to, Samuel's not here, right? Okay, uh, so I used to sneak out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not protecting your kids, just mine. All right. <laughs> so I used to sneak out to go to the 7-Eleven and play Donkey Kong as long as, I, as long as I could. And I had a friend, his name was Chris Nye, and um, he used to have this trick that he would do. Um, that you can't do anymore. I'm pretty sure. I haven't tried. But I think the video games nowadays are, are created with like um, uh, guards to keep this from happening. But my, my friend, he would take a quarter and he'd hammer a nail through it. And then he would tie a fishing line around it. <clears throat> and then he would put that quarter in the, in the machine. And as soon as it triggered the game, he'd pull that quarter back out and he'd play his game. Pretty Pretty crafty, huh? So, um, and I'll tell you, I wasn't saved at that time. I was probably only about 10 or so. And, um, and I, I had a conscience that just wouldn't let me do that. So I never did that. Um, but he did. But what I noticed in, in how we played this game was, was 
you can probably imagine already just from what I said, but, but the way that, that, that my friend would play the game was very different than how I would play the game, obviously, right? Because I got that one quarter. And, and so I'm being very cautious, being careful. I'm trying to make all my, my, my moves count. And that's how they did in Donkey Kong, right? You jump over the barrels. And so... <laughs> Or Pac-Man, but anyway, <laughs> and in the Atari version, he never turned his head. He just did that, but I don't know why that was. But um, and so I'd be very careful in playing these video games. And um, but but my friend, you you can imagine, he wasn't careful at all, was he? I mean, he figured, you know what? It's a free game. I'll drop this quarter in again. So he took chances. He went crazy. He jump over stupid things. I mean, he just took the game to its to its to its limit. <clears throat> Now, I'm not going to tell you why I told you that yet, but it does have a lot to do with Psalm 23, verse 6, and I hope I'll be able to show you that when I, when I, um, when I get there. Can we bring the volume down a little bit? Because that's, I'm really, I'm sorry, I'm just getting a lot of that high, and it's, it's making it hard for me to think. I have ghosts in my head. So, the phrase that I'm going to look at is, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And that's the that's phrase that I want to rip apart. But I, there's three things that I saw about this. And the first thing that I saw is the personification of goodness and love. But, but let me show you how, what that looks like. Here's what the verse, each phrase of the verse I went over. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He refreshes. He guides. Then it switches to more personal but you are with me, your rod, your staff, you prepare, you anoint. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. Now that's in the, the, the NIV, the more modern version of the NIV. In the Hebrew, and also probably in the King James that you guys are used to, the word your is not there. It's just surely goodness and love uh, follow me all the days of my life. But what's particularly interesting about that in the context of Psalm 23 is that you notice every single phrase has a direct um, reference to God, right? And they're all active references. God's always doing something. God is making him light on. God is leading him. God is refreshing him. God is guiding him. God is with him. God's wrath. God's st- it's all about what God is doing, right? But in this phrase, what is the acting, what is acting in this phrase? Goodness and love. Goodness and love personified. And it, it, it struck me. Maybe I'm just crazy up here and you're like, that's Chris's problem. But it, it just struck me. Why did, why, did, why did David mention God directly, either by name or by his pronoun, over and over and over, and then all of a sudden he has goodness and love doing the work in this phrase? Here's my thought. Maybe, maybe David replaced God with God's character. So it's still God who's working, but he's getting a little more specific in telling us what God is like when he says goodness and love. I mean, think about it. How do you see God? Right? Remember, it's in Deuteronomy 4 where God says, don't make any idols, right? But do you remember why he says don't make any idols? He says, because I don't have an image. At the mountain, you never saw me. I don't have an image. So why would you create an image to make for someone who doesn't have an image? So if God doesn't have an image, how do we see him? Well, here's my thought. God shows himself through 
creation, the things he can do. It reveals his power. It reveals his intelligence. God also shows himself through his character. That's what he is like. It reveals his personality. There are two ways of of looking at God. And theologians, I like to use these words not to sound smart, but because they're fun to say. You could say them with me if you want, but incommunicable. Isn't that a fun word? Okay, let's say it together. Incommunicable. It just feels good on the mouth. But anyway, God shows himself through his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. Basically what that means is there are, there are things about God which cannot be communicated to us. Or another way of looking at it is cannot be transferred to us. Let me give you an example. God is omnipresent. Can you do that? No. Does God want you to do that? No. That is an attribute of God that you are not going to have. So when we're created in the image of God, we are not created to be omnipresent. God is all-powerful. No. God is all-knowing. Again, that's not for us. But his communicable attributes can be boiled down into four phrases. Love, holiness, righteousness, and faithfulness. And, of course, there's other synonymous-type phrases that can be put under those four categories. These would be considered his communicable attributes. In other words, these are the things about God that he wants to be about you. The only difference is God is love. He's not really good at love. He is love. We are not. So we have to learn it. We have to assume it. We have to put it on, like Paul writes, put on the, um, the fruit of the Spirit. You know? He is holy. We try to be holy. He is righteous. We desire to be righteous. He is faithful, truthful, honest. We have to work at these things. But this is how God shows himself. He shows himself by his communicable attributes as well as his incommunicable attributes. I'll get away from those phrases. Does that make sense? Yes, they do. All right. So when we get to Colossians 1.15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which is a, a, a crazy phrase all by itself. Image of the invisible. Doesn't that sound like a self-defeating phrase? Yet that's how Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. So what is it about Jesus that images God? I would say it's these things. He's showing the character of God in his love and his, in his, his righteousness, his holiness, his faithfulness. And then in Romans, when Paul says that we're being conformed into the image of his son, I think that's what he's talking about. So we are designed to point to or proclaim what God does. Those are things that we can't do, right? This is how, we, this is how God is seen in our world. We point to his, 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 these attributes of, of creation, the things we can't do. And we reflect what he is like. So, David says, goodness and love follow me all the days of my life. I think he's describing God. And he's doing it by describing God's character. The second thing that jumped out at me, and I just turned the page before I was done. The second thing that jumped out at me is in the word surely. Um, you guys have heard this phrase, God is good. What? Weak. God is good. And all the time? Yes. Yeah, I love the phrase. I didn't used to, but I, I, I do love it now. And so, and so this has a lot, of, lot to do with this concept of surely. When he says, surely goodness and love follow me all the days of my life. Except that in the Hebrew, 
The word surely, the Hebrew word there, it's ak. But um, it, it shows up a bunch in the Bible, but mo- most of the time it shows up, it's not translated surely. It's usually, as, as you see on the screen, it's usually translated by the word only. And so, um, like Young's literal trans- translation, if you read that, it says, only goodness and love follow me all the days of my life. Now, as I just say that, you're kind of like, well, yeah, that's nice and all that. But really think about that for a second, right? That's not as simple to think, to think through as, as, as it sounds. As you reflect on your life, it's kind of difficult to comprehend that God is only good and love all the, day, all the time. You think about your life, you think about the fact that God is all-knowing, that he's, there's nothing that he's not aware about. He's all-powerful, he's completely in control, and then I pair that up with my life's experiences, and I feel like there's a lot in my life that's not good. There's a lot in my life that doesn't feel very loving. So now I have a conflict, don't I? Either I believe Psalm 23.6, or I don't. Right? What does that say? Well, this is a deep philosophical issue, but on the surface, let me at least say this. It at least speaks to the fact that we probably misunderstand what God's character really looks like. We probably don't have the most accurate definition of what goodness and love really are. That's how I work it out if I want to say that this book tells me what to think. If this book tells me that God is only good and love toward me all the time, then that means when I look at my life, I need to redefine some of the events of my life. I'll put these together in a minute and give you a complete picture of that phrase. But the third thing about this phrase that really hit me is in the word follow. What does it mean that goodness and love follow me all the days of my life? You know, I, I really wrestled with that. I, I didn't know precisely what David was trying to communicate. Is he saying that the effects of my life as I'm living and people look at the effects of what I do, that they say, wow, I don't know what he did, but that seemed really good and loving, you know? Is it, is it a characteristic that exudes from me? Or is it something different? And so I was like, well, I, I need to get to the root of what the word follow means in order to unfold that. And so I started looking it up. And I found that the word follow shows up in the Bible 173 times. This is the English word follow, and I'm using the, um, I believe I was using the New American Standard on translation to, to do this work. And it shows up 173 times in the Old Testament. Of the 173 times that the word, English word follow shows up, it comes from this Hebrew word, only four of them. So most of the times it comes from another word. I went to the Hebrew word then and saw that it shows up 143 times in the Old Testament. This is where I'm going to get a little academic. And don't worry, I won't dwell there. I'll put it together in a minute. But, but I think this is helpful. And it only shows it only four. That means 100 and, 100 and... Let me do my math here. 139 times that that Hebrew word that David used shows up in the Bible. It was not translated follow. It was translated something else. So what, so what is that word usually translated as? Some of you may have heard me talk about this before. Why such a tra- rare translation? What is behind this word? Most of the time that Radaf shows up in the Old Testament, it's translated persecute. 
And I went through. I went, I went through and looked at all 143 just because I was curious. I wanted to look at the context of where they showed up in the Bible. And even when it's not translated persecute, it's translated pursue or hunt down, kind of like in a wartime setting where someone's trying to go after you with an intent to harm you. So that, now I'm getting an idea of what's behind this word follow a little bit, right? So now, what, now this phrase reads what? Surely goodness and love will persecute me all the days of my life. I can see why the translators had trouble with that, right? It just doesn't feel like that's what it should say. So let's, let's put follow there, right? I think that feels a little bit better. But why would David choose this word? Why would David in Psalm 23 say goodness and love are persecuting me? I don't know for certain. Maybe I'll ask him someday. But if I look at his life, it might give me a, a little bit of an insight. I mean, first time we hear about David in the Bible, he's a no-name. Remember, Samuel is going to look for the new king, and he says, where, where are your kids? And he says, well, there's this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. He calls them all by name. He says, I don't know. You, you got any others? Oh, there's the boy. Don't even give him a name. The boy out with the sheep. So he's not very respected in his own family, it seems. And then when he does seem to get into the service of the, 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 the king, Saul, Saul decides that he will throw spears at him. That's not very fun, is it? And then Saul proceeds to hunt him down for 15 years. And this happens after Samuel told David that he's going to be the new king. He spends much of his life on the run in some conflict or another, hiding in caves, false accusations, wars. There's feuds in his family. His own children attempt to steal his throne from him. False accusation after false accusation. A number of people curse him ignorantly, not understanding the events and decisions of his life. There's one example where a man named Shimei is by the side of the road, and David is, is fleeing for his life. He's king. He's actually king. And his own son is trying to take the throne from him, and it's set up in such a way that David has to run for his life. He's, he's leaving Jerusalem, and Shimei comes up and starts throwing rocks and dirt at him. The king! He's throwing rocks and dirt at the king! His men say, you want me to cut off this dead dog's head? That's what some of David's friends say to him. And David says, let him curse. He's obviously upset. But that, that's not a fun life. He carried the spiritual weight of guilt because of his own failures, bad decisions, murder, adultery, etc. What was good and loving about David's life? David viewed his life as persecution. But persecuted with what? Goodness and love. Now, now, if this isn't setting right with you yet, let me give you a couple examples. Real life examples of unwanted goodness or persecuting love. Uh, a number of years ago, I think Samuel was two, and we were visiting um, family in Michigan, and we were driving back to, um, to Maryland. And we stopped at, at Breezewood, Pennsylvania to get some, get some gas and have some dinner. And we get out, and, and there's a Dairy Queen. And nobody says no to Dairy Queen. And so, and so, we, so we had some ice cream. I got a chocolate ice cream that was dipped in chocolate on a chocolate cone with some chocolate sprinkles, probably. I don't remember, but can't go wrong with that. Got a little v- vanilla bowl and gave it to Samuel. And, and we're sitting in the car. Getting, we don't want to go out on the road with all this ice cream, but we're going to... We're eating some ice cream before we get on the road. And then I look down at Samuel, and he's just got tears just, just streaming down his face. 
I mean, he's crying like crazy, like I hadn't seen him cry before. And I'm thinking, wow, he's in pain. So I'm thinking ice cream, it's summertime. Probably has a brain freeze, right? You guys have had those before. Awesome. So I'm thinking he's in pain. So I'm like trying to comfort him a little bit. And, um, and after a minute goes by, and all of a sudden he starts composing himself, and he's still crying. He goes, chocolate. Like, wait a second. He's not having a brain freeze. He's mad because he has a vanilla bowl of ice cream and I have a chocolate ice cream cone. He's just angry that he didn't get what he wanted. Now, I did give him some. But you see, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we make good decisions for our kids that don't feel good to our kids, right? It's not, it's, it doesn't feel good to be told to go to bed when you've got so much energy and you want to play. It doesn't feel good to say you have to do homework when there's so many toys to play with. But as a parent, I will not give you what's not good for you. And sometimes it feels like I'm persecuting you when I'm giving you what's good. Can it not be the same with God? He he wants to give you good things. He wants to love you. And us, in our sin-clouded, limited understanding, say, Ow! That hurts. Why are you so mean? God is always loving and good all the time. God does not lounge back and look at his children and say, Gee, wow, that's unfortunate. I wish it was different. If only I could do something about it. I hope that's not your view of God, right? Your view of God is looking at your circumstance and saying, Wow, really like to help, but kind of strapped here. If God can do anything, he can do anything. And if God is love, then whatever he decides to do is love. Even if it might hurt at times. God is always gives us what is good for us, even the painful things. So, with that understanding of Psalm 23, 6, let me paraphrase it. This is my way of paraphrasing it. Certainly, God, who is always and only good and loving all the time, will hunt me down. And he'll press that which is beneficial, which is beautiful, which is benevolent, onto me for the rest of my life Yes, even all of eternity. So, if I'm right, I think I am, but if I'm right in looking at Psalm 23, 6 this way, it has some pretty serious implications. Some of these are very comforting, and some of these are very challenging. So, to be merciful, I will give you comforting first, and then we'll make it hurt. First, we'll consider comforting. And we'll do this by looking at another very familiar verse, Romans 8, 28. I'm not going to put that one on the screen, but you guys know it. You can hear it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, now do, you, do, you, do you see the similarities? I mean, think about that. And there's some amazing similarities in those phrases. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But notice that Paul does not say, in spite of all things. What does he say? In all things. And if you don't think that that's Paul's point in this verse, consider the rest of Romans 8, where he gives us two very crazy lists. In verse 31 he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? That's a nice list, isn't it? it that's, are these, these things you want to characterize your life? But Paul says, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, and then says this, as it is written, for your sake we face death. All day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Then a second time, Paul says in verse 37, no, in all these things. In fact, in this time, he doesn't say in all things like he does in Romans 8, 28. He says in all these things. Which things? That list. Danger, persecution, hardship, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things, not in spite of all these things. In other words, the difficulties are part of God's goodness toward us. Is this comforting? Yes! The worst that the world or any power in the universe can throw at us cannot ultimately touch us. This is good news. But Paul goes beyond just saying that it can't touch us. He says that we are more than conquerors. Have you ever thought about what that phrase means? More than conquerors. He didn't say we're just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. What is more than a conqueror? I mean, a conqueror eliminates the enemy's ability to harm us. So what more can be done? Some might say that the conqueror enslaves the enemy and forces them to serve you. I think that might be close, but I think that God has something a little more profound, a little more brilliant in the way he does things. I think that God lets the enemy run rampant, but unknowingly, the enemy works for our good. Yes, the evil that is pointed at us not only cannot ultimately harm us, but even more so, it will actually be an expression of God's goodness toward us. Insult to injury. In other words, the enemy comes after you and tries to do harm to you. And in Christ, not only does his attempt to harm you not affect us, but God twists it in such a way as to make it work for us and use it for our good. Are you getting this? You feel the comfort in that? So the challenge. The challenge is risky love. In fact, I didn't give you the title of the message. The message is the foundation and necessity of risky love. The implications from this are are, are huge. If we are indeed called to be imitators of Christ... If we are to share in his sufferings, if we are to love our enemies, seek the lost, take up our crosses, love the world while the world hates us, 
If all these are true, if Christ is with us yet also prepares a place for us, is guaranteeing a treasure in heaven, has enabled us to receive rewards, if he is our friend, our comfort, our inheritance, our advocate, our teacher, our treasure, our shepherd, then we can sell all we have in order to show this same kind of love to those around us, to the ends of the earth, to all creation, to all nations. And when we sold it all and risked everything, we realized that we never really lost anything. Instead, we saved our souls. That sounds crazy to put it that way. But Jesus puts it very similarly. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So you see in Matthew 16 there. Go and put the next one up there. Jesus says... For the Son of Man. You see that? There we go. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will reward each person according to what he has done. So what normally happens when we read that passage, we get so caught up on the taking up your cross part. Like, how can you tell us to take up our cross? How can you tell us to take up our death? That we miss that Jesus doesn't just hang this out as a threat or a dare. He doesn't just say, take up your cross and good luck with that. He says, take up your cross. Why? Because it'll be good for you. I have unspeakable rewards I want to give to you. Just take up your cross. And I'll give you riches you've never heard of. It's good for us. That's why Jesus tells us to take up our cross. Not as a dare, but because he wants to bless us. This chosen life of denial that appears to be plagued with loss is actually filled with reward for what they do. And what will they do? What does he call them to do that he says he'll reward them for? That's seen by taking up their cross. Well, I think you get a hint just a few verses before Matthew 16, 27. Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God never calls us to something that is not filled with purpose. Jesus, let me explain something before I do that last line there. The gates thing. Have you heard people talk about the gates thing? I used to, I used to view this idea that the, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I used to think, oh, that means that Jesus is going to protect us, right? Relax, people. Um, don't worry, the gates of hell won't prevail against you. G- gates are not offensive weapons, are they? You know, nobody says, men, take up your gates. We're going to war. (laughs) Gates are defensive weapons. So if gates are something that's on hell, then hell's not doing the attacking, right? Hell's doing the, the, the defending. So who's doing the attacking? The church. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. In other words, Jesus is not saying, relax, I'll protect you. He's saying, attack, they can't stop you. That's what they'll do. And how will they attack? With the unconditional 
unexplainable, undeniable love, grace, and mercy of God. The same way God attacked David. And when this is done the way Jesus demonstrated, people will watch, people will know, and people will respond. Remember my friend's quarter trick? I told you I will explain that story. So here we go. How did he play the game? Didn't, he took risks. He went crazy. He made, he made insane decisions. Why? Because it was win-win, right? If, 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 he, if he dies in the game, he's still, still got the quarter. Just put it in again. I think that's, something how, uh, that, that's similar to how God wants us to live the Christian life. If God works all things out for the good of those who love him, then what's to risk? What's to lose? My friend just enjoyed the game, took risks, and just plain went for it. Not that we're thoughtless and careless. I'm not saying that. But after we've considered the cost, after we peered at the prize, then we could rest in the risk of biblical love. It means... When I overcome my enemies, it works for my good, right? Romans 8.28. How many things work for our good? All things. So when I overcome my enemies, it works for my good. When my enemies overcome me, it works for my good. When I make good decisions that lead to success, it works for my good. You getting how this works? See how Romans 8.28 works? When goodness and love are persecuting you? When I make poor decisions that cause me harm, it works for my good. When I am sick from people I encounter, it works for my good. When I'm in debt because of what I've given, it works for my good. When I'm killed, is that the exception? Nope. It works for my good. I cannot lose. So I say, go for it. Go for it. What can you lose? Nothing. You can lose nothing. If Romans 8.28 is true, then all things work for our good. Then just go for it. Now I'm, th- I'm not talking about being stupid, but I'm saying love God and attempt in crazy things for him. And if it works, it works for your good. And if it doesn't work, it works for your good. But, it's the, but sitting back in confusion is not an option, in my, in my opinion. Love. And the context of sin always requires sacrifice. It often requires suffering, especially in the context of sin. Suffering is a values clarifier. It clarifies what we value most. I can only love someone or something to the degree that I will suffer for it. To the degree that I will not suffer for someone or something, I do not love them. I'm not suggesting that you need to prove your love By seeking out some sort of suffering, that would be sick and twisted and not honoring to God. But I am saying that suffering clarifies what you love most. Risk reveals love. Risk, again, is not required for there to be love, but it shows it. Let me me illustrate this. This is the way I, you probably heard me say this kind of thing before, but this is the way I always like to illustrate it. Say we had donut time downstairs, right? And there's some kid, and he's got like the chocolate eclair, chocolate filled, chocolate 
syrup thing, and he's like, it's like all down his wrist. He's like, oh, it's so good, you know. And after church, he comes up here, and he says, oh, check that out, a guitar. I'm going to go off the guy that. That's my best three-year-old walk. Sorry. So he goes up like that. And I'm over here talking to somebody, right? So I'm talking to Jim, and Jim says, hey, Chris, how's it going? I'm like, whatever. <laughs> right? That conversation is over. Now, that might be rude. I might offend Jim. I might hurt myself if I have to jump over a chair. Right? I might look foolish. So I've risked the way I look. I've risked my own health by being willing to jump over the chair. I've risked making an enemy from a friend. I've risked a lot of things. But what was revealed in that action? I love my guitar. I really love my guitar. And I'll risk a lot of things for my guitar. You see what I mean? See how risk works? It, 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 I loved my guitar before those things happened. But you guys saw how much I loved it by what I was willing to risk. Same happens with family. I could tell you I, I, I love my son, right? But when the bus is flying down the street and I jump in front of it because my son wandered onto the street, there's no doubt in anybody's mind now. You could have thought that was lip service that he loves his son. But when I jumped in front of the bus, there's no doubt anymore, right? Why? Because of the act of, of risk, the act of sacrifice. If this is true in these everyday examples, is it, would it not also be true with God? Suffering is a values clarifier. Risk reveals what we love and how much we love. I'm going to read a little bit about the person Adonai Judson as I bring this to a close. He made crazy risky decisions with his life. And I think in doing so, it revealed to the world what he loved the most. I'll start with his marriage proposal. He wrote a letter to his soon-to-be wife's father. And this is what he wrote. If you guys have daughters, think about what you do with receiving this letter. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Remember, this is a marriage proposal, just in case you forgot. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can I marry your daughter? That's a crazy... I mean, what would the... The Wamsleys do. You got three daughters. Did you get a marriage proposal like that? <laughs> Boy, he revealed a lot in that letter, didn't he? He put a lot on the line, and he revealed what he loved most. Here's a summary of his life. The few who remained faithful were rewarded with intense government persecution. Judson himself was also in danger, suspected of being a spy during Burma's civil war. He was sent to a death prison where he was hung upside down in leg irons every night and forced on a death march that almost killed him. In addition, Judson faced the pain of loss some two dozen times, burying his first and second wife. In fact, from 1812 to 1850, 24 of Judson's relatives or close associates died, including seven of his 13 children. 
As a husband, father, missionary, and friend, Judson truly knew what it was to suffer. Nevertheless, enduring all of this, he steadfastly pursued his goal of translating the Bible into Burmese. In 1850, he died in obscurity, leaving a Burmese church with only a handful of believers. Did he take a risk? Did he suffer and sacrifice? In fact, his translation of the Bible is still used in Myanmar today. In 1993, the head of the Myanmar Evangelical Fellowship stated, Today there are six million Christians in Myanmar, and every one of us trace our spiritual heritage to one man, Adoniram Judson. How did Judson view his own life? This is what Judson says when people asked him about his missionary life before he died, because he couldn't answer after that. He said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. Psalm 23, 6. Do you see it? Let me put the chart up and maybe you'll see it. If I had not felt certain all the days of my life, every additional trial will follow me was ordered by infinite love and mercy, goodness and love. I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. He believed, Psalm 23, 6, that goodness and love were hunting him down. And because of that, he was able to endure the suffering and the sacrifices and the risks of his life. Culturally, this is opposite. The world teaches us that our highest values are safety, security, Comforts, conveniences, desires, preferences. This thinking is often pressed by some of the more popular, well-meaning Christians we hear on radio and television. The truth is, when our security, comforts, and desires are grounded in Jesus, the world can collapse around us and we will rejoice. What risk is God in his love chasing you down with? I can't answer that question for you. Perhaps it's monetary. Maybe God has called you to help someone struggling with bills. You're able, but afraid that you won't be able to take care of yourself. Is it a risk? Yes. But if God is calling you to do this, he will also take care of you in his way and in his time. Perhaps it's a question of safety. Opening your home to someone in a difficult transitional time in their life. We did this at one time. It's risky when you're not entirely confident of the character of the individual who is in your house. Again, if God is calling you to this, you must trust him and overcome your fears by delighting in his call more than your concerns. Perhaps it's time. Maybe God is calling you to a more relational ministry, but you don't seem to have the hours. It may be a risk to work less hours in order to be effectively involved in other people's lives. You may have to trim down kids' activities and risk scholarship opportunities. However, if God is calling you to this, then these are the sacrifices that must be made in order for the highest value, the glory of God, to be clarified and revealed to a world that desperately needs to see what you love the most. This is my challenge. Please take significant time this week, even today, to pray sincerely about how God might want to be revealed through your life 
He wants people to see him and how important and lovely he is. And he wants, to, he wants people to see that through you. Maybe even seek the counsel of other godly people who God may have enabled to see areas in your life where he is making you shine. And then make a commitment to declare the praises of God by being willing to allow his persecuting love to lead you to difficult decisions in order for him to be seen as great and for you to be filled with joy. You may even want to share these thoughts and commitments with someone who loves you enough to help you stick to them, even if it costs you much. Let me pray. Jesus, I just thank you for who you are. You never told us that life would be simple. But you said in you, things will start to come into priority. In you, we might be able to have a life of meaning and effectiveness. In you, our values will rise to the top and the world's values will fade. This is hard, but you know it's hard and you have grace and mercy for that. And so we pray that you would just fill us in such a way that we can demonstrate as individuals, as communities, as a church, what we love the most. And it's you. But help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and I'll say one last thing and send you off. We all die. We all suffer. It's the fabric of our sin-plagued lives. The question is, will we love? And how can we love like this? I know how. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. If you cannot believe this, you cannot love like Christ loved. So I say, you cannot lose. Go for it. Amen? First Baptist, go for it.